The scriptural reading today is chapter 1 from the book of Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind across the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down to the lowest parts of the ship, had laid down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know from whose cause this trouble has come to us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation, and where do you come from, and what is your country, and what people are you? So Jonah said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he had fled from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them, then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be calm again? For the sea was growing even more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land. But they could not, for the sea was growing to even more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they cried out to the Lord, and they said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life. And so do not charge us with innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, and they threw him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Thank you, Jerry. Can y'all realize how good that band is? I mean, come on. Can you, can you just clap for him one more time? I mean, red hot chili peppers inside of like a Holiday Inn conference room. This is your church, y'all. This is your church. Why are you here? I was kidding. Now, after you hear the sermon today, go back and listen to that song. It'll, it'll click. That was just good. Thank you guys for doing that. Appreciate it. Um, hey, don't forget, today we got a baptism happening. Yeah? Got a good group of folks um, getting baptized. We're going to be over at the Day's house, 4 o'clock. You're all invited. You all are invited to Lindsay's house. We'll be having a cookout, and Matt, too. Matt will be there as well. Um, if you don't have the address, stop out at the Connect table. We can make sure you know where you're going. But that's an open invite. We're all here to celebrate the new stuff that's happening in the lives of people in our church. Can I get an amen on that? Awesome. Well, this morning, I want to start by talking about laughter. Isn't laughing the best? 
I mean, laughing is just, it's the best. It's how my wife and I flirt, um, TMI, right? But we send each other messages with like, you know, links to funny videos on Instagram. It's like how we flirt. You know, and I love nothing more than just watching her crack up. I've, I've shared that with you on several occasions. It's a lot of fun to watch. But, but laughing, laughing's fascinating to me. It's believed that as a species, we've been laughing longer than we've been talking. In fact, you know, people think that it was sort of one of our first forms of communication. A way of sort of signaling to each other that, that we're safe, right? That, that we're not a threat. And that's even true still today. Research has found that more often than not, when we laugh, it's not because of a joke or because of humor. But if you pay attention, we do it a lot in friendly conversations and social interactions. Bottom line is laughter, it it connects us, doesn't it? You know, laughing has this way of like lowering our defenses, just making us a bit more receptive. That's why I think stand-up comics get away with so much. I mean, stand-up comics, if you think about it, they're funny, but man, they can also cut, too. I think they're like modern-day prophets. I got so much respect for stand-up comics. I think some of the smartest people on planet Earth. They have this way of sort of noticing how things are, right? And essentially what they do is they hold up a mirror, let us see ourselves, and we love them for it. right? But if you pay attention, sometimes, man, they, they can land some stuff. Am I right? So I think if Jesus were to come today, he'd come as a stand-up comic. I really do. I, th- I think that's, what, that's how Jesus would be with us today. But here's why I bring all of this up. The book that we're going to be learning from and learning about today is the closest thing in the Bible to a comedy that you'll find. I'm talking about the book of Jonah. It's the closest thing to a comedy you're going to find in the Bible. It wants to make us laugh a lot. But not just to be silly but to actually get us to open up, to hear a very challenging message about the unruly nature of God's grace. For just now joining us, we've been spending several weeks taking a look at like some obscure books in the Old Testament, learning from them. We're taking a big picture approach. Usually what we do is we sort of identify a passage, we kind of really drill down into a handful of verses, kind of mine it, for all that it's worth. And that's fun. That's helpful. But I think sometimes it's also helpful to kind of take a step back and look at a book as a whole because they weren't written to be broken up the way that we break them up. People would read large chunks of them at a time, if not the whole thing. And so we're just kind of observing some of these books and they're a little different. They're a little odd compared to the rest of the books that we find in scripture, just to sort of see what's there. We looked at Job last week. Today, we're looking at the book of Jonah. Now, like Job, I don't believe that Jonah is a book that's meant to be read literally. I don't believe that it's meant to be read historically, even. See, Jonah, I would argue, is best understood as a work of fiction, specifically something called satire. Y'all familiar with satire? Satire is a sort of parable that uses irony and a hint of sarcasm and some comedy to get its point across. In my opinion, Jonah is not a book that is meant to be read literally or historically. Now, that doesn't mean, I said this last week, that doesn't mean that it isn't authoritative. It doesn't mean it isn't inspired or that it isn't true. I just don't think the intention of the book is to tell us about something that actually happened. 
Now, that's not because I can't believe in a guy getting swallowed by a fish and living to tell about it. Let's just take a sec. I believe in a guy getting swallowed up by death and coming out on the other side to tell us about it. So it's not beyond my, you know, comprehend to, to, to believe that this could happen. Sure, it could happen. But I don't think that's the intention of the author. And sometimes we can get too hung up on the fish, y'all. And we actually miss what the author is trying to tell us. And so I, I bring all this up. If you want to read this as a historical, go for it. That's fine. But if you're in here and you feel like you can't read this book because of that, you're missing it. You don't have to. You can read this as a parable. And I'm telling you, it's got something to say. A really important message to share with us. But we have good reasons to believe that this is not a historical book. For one, when it opens, we're not given any historical markers, which is pretty much how it goes whenever you read a book about a prophet. There's a lot of books in the Bible about prophets, right? And typically what happens is we're given a whole lot of historical markers when the story opens. We're told who was the king at the time in Israel. We're told some of the things that were happening in the world at the time because they want us to know when this is taking place. Not so much in Jonah. It opens in kind of almost like a once upon a time sort of feel, all right? At the same time, man, everything in Jonah is like over the top, y'all. Like the emotions are exaggerated. They're big. All the reactions are exaggerated. The descriptions are over the top. And there's a whole lot of personification going on. You know what that means? Who remembers like English class? Personification is when like an author gives human characteristics to non-human things. You know, like in chapter four of Jonah, animals are wearing clothing, okay? In chapter one, even the boat that's in the storm, the words that's used to describe sort of the boat's reaction to this are, are human-like. It says the boat considered or was thinking about falling apart. So it's almost like you're supposed to imagine it with eyes, like in a kid's book. Like this boat's got eyes and it's sitting there. The storm's so scary. It's like, man, it'd be better off. Should I just fall apart and sink? I might be better off than staying here for all of this. It's thinking. It's considering. So there's like human qualities to it. There are a lot of other reasons that I think, you know, we, we, we can read this book as, as parable. But most important, and this is important, Jonah is a comedy. It wants us to laugh. Now, a lot's changed between now and then, right, in terms of what we think's funny. Okay, but I still think this book is funny. It's got sort of a Monty Python and the Holy Grail vibe to it. I know Monty Python is like, you either love it or hate it. There's no middle road for people in Monty Python. I love Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And there's, nothing, there's nothing better than watching the Holy Grail with other people who love it. Am I right? There's nothing worse than watching it with people who don't get it. Right? But I'm telling you, man, this book has got a big time, especially chapter 3, kind of a Monty Python and the Holy Grail vibe to it. But I, so what I want to do today is I just want to teach through the story. I can definitely do that. And the time we have available, it's only four chapters long, not like 42 chapters last week. Whew. But I just kind of want to teach our way through it, point out some things to see if we can get a sense of how this book wants to challenge us. You up for it? Let's pray, and then we'll get into it. God, again, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word that so often meets us in the scriptures. And so this morning, speak to us. Make this time together something more than just fun or interesting. Make it essential. We pray that something happens in each of us, that we hear something that challenges us, that opens us up, 
that stretches us and that grows us more and more into the likeness of your son, Jesus. That's why we're here. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, let's go back to the opening again. It says this, chapter 1, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go preach to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. That's where they invented tartar sauce. I'm just kidding. Don't laugh at that. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that, that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. I love, I love imagining this. You know, when you ever, you got to think, whenever you read a story about a prophet, it kind of opens similar where it says the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to so-and-so, right? And then usually what happens is it says they arose right away and they went and they did what God told them to do. So you kind of have a similar opening. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. So you can like see him sitting there. You know, maybe he's praying or meditating and he gets this word and he rises up slowly. And then he runs away, right? Like totally different reaction to the word of the Lord that people would have been, you know, used to. Now let's talk about the different locations that are mentioned because this is important. Nineveh, everybody say Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire located somewhere probably in modern day Iraq. Y'all, the Assyrians were brutal. They were nasty. As empires go, they might have been the worst in terms of what they did to the people they conquered. They are famous for how they would torture and kill their captives, right? So they're not nice people. They're nasty. I think you've got to say Nineveh. You've got to say it like that, right? I mean, they're just, they're gnarly. Now, there was a point in Israel's history where, for various reasons, the nation was divided into two kingdoms, right? The north and the south. The southern kingdom was made up of two tribes, Judah and and Benjamin, and the northern kingdom was made up of the other ten tribes. Well, the Assyrians laid waste to the northern kingdom. I mean, by the time they were done, they had wiped out ten out of twelve tribes. This is who Assyria is, okay? They're nasty. I mean, God sending a prophet, sending a Jewish prophet to Assyria. Think about that. I'd be, be like sending a, a prophet to, German, uh, to Nazi Germany. I mean, it is that level. You can imagine why Jonah doesn't want to go, right? He could be afraid. I mean, these are awful people. What they've done to my people, it's terrifying. It's scary, right? Now, Joppa. Joppa is modern-day Tel Aviv. That's where it's located. It's on the coast of the Mediterranean. It's a port city. And so Jonah goes there to catch a ship that would take him to Tarshish. Now, Tarshish was located in southern Spain, right? So it's just west of Gibraltar, right? Now, this was known as the westernmost place in the ancient world. This is as far west as you could possibly go. It's over 2,000 miles to the west of Israel, right? Now, not only were Nineveh and Tarshish polar opposites geographically, but they're also complete opposites in terms of what they represented. Nineveh was a place of darkness, I mean, in the, book, in the book of Jonah, it's referred to as wicked, violent, and evil. Tarshish, on the other hand, was a sort of paradise. I mean, it was known for being a place of luxury. It's like the ancient world's version of, like, Hawaii, who we should be praying for right now. Amen? But do, are you feeling the difference here? Tarshish is like, oh. Nineveh is like, Bleh. Right? Do, do you feel the difference? 
Now, at the beginning of the book, we have these two cities that are the complete opposite of each other in more ways than just one. And here's what I find interesting. In the first three verses, we are told two times that Jonah fled or ran away from the presence of the Lord. This is the unique abiding, this is the heart of God. That's what it means. God's everywhere, right? God's presence is everywhere. But when the scriptures talk about the presence, they're talking about where God's heart's directed, where God's unique dwelling presence is. And in running away from the presence of God, in which direction did he go? He went away from Nineveh and toward Tarshish. Doesn't that seem sort of backwards to you, of where you would expect God's heart to be? I mean, in trying to escape from the presence of God, Jonah runs away from Nineveh and towards paradise, which begs the question from the very, very beginning, where is God's heart? Where is God's presence? It's in Nineveh. It's in Nineveh. Perhaps the last place on earth a prophet like Jonah would expect God's unique presence to be. See, this is the thing about Jonah, y'all. This book. Right? The story of Jonah, what it does is it takes the normal, it takes the expected, the sort of status quo, and it all gets flipped on its head, sort of upside down. Right? Like Jonah gets on board a ship, and on their way, we're told that the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and a violent storm arose. And this is when the ship started to think about breaking up. Maybe I just want to fall apart, right? Maybe I just want to sink and get out of this. And then it goes on to say this, all the sailors were afraid... And each cried to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below the deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. So the ship is full of people who the scriptures would call pagans, people who don't, who don't worship Jonah's God. They don't worship Yahweh, right? They worship lots of different gods. The storm comes up, and they all start praying, but what does Jonah do? Jonah goes to the hole of the ship, the belly of the ship, and he goes to sleep. Now the rabbis, we have one in the room right now. Rabbi Olshine is right here. The rabbis have an interesting tradition around this part of the story. This is called midrash. Right? What I love about the, you know, the way uh, rabbis will approach the text is they have the text. And they have all this commentary and all these interpretations around the text too that they think is also authoritative. But there was all this conversation amongst the rabbis. And there's this old tradition that says that there were 70 Gentiles, 70 non-Jewish people on board this ship. So a crew of 70, right? One from every Gentile nation. In the ancient world, that's what, there were 70 nations, right? So this, this ship is meant to represent the whole world. So you've got 70 Gentiles on board this ship that all worship lowercase g gods. And you've got one Hebrew prophet who worships Yahweh, the one true God. And where is he? Asleep. And what are the pagans doing? Praying. Praying. Do you feel that? So the captain goes and finds Jonah and wakes him up. It's like, come on, man. What are you doing? You know, we're all praying. you got to pray too. I mean, the ship's about to fall apart. All right, so he wakes Jonah up, gets, tells him to start praying, and they're realizing their prayers aren't working. And so they assume that somebody on board has done something to offend their God. That's why this has happened. Somebody's in trouble with their God. And so they cast lots. That's how they would figure things out back then. It's like dice. They sort of roll the dice, and apparently the lot falls to Jonah. And they're like, you, you've offended your God. Tell us more about who you are. Who are you? And he says, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a prophet. I'm a Hebrew. I'm a prophet of Yahweh. Maybe you've heard of him. 
He's the creator of the land and the sea. And like, what did you do to offend him? I mean, this must be serious. Like, tell us more. Jonah says, well, he told me to go preach to the Ninevites, but I didn't want to do that. I mean, y'all know the Assyrians, right? So I just ran away. I don't want to do it. And they're like, you can't do that. You have to serve your God. You don't run from your God. Like, what are you doing? And they said, well, what are we supposed to do here then? Like, how do we make this stop? And Jonah says, just throw me overboard. Which we'll find in the story, this is like Jonah's like go-to. Whenever he gets flustered, whenever he gets angry, whenever things get hard, he's like, just kill me. This is ridiculous. I just want to die. I mean, this is his response to just about everything that doesn't go his way. He's like, I'm done. I'm out. Just kill me, right? He says, throw me overboard, right? And all the sailors said, we're not going to do that. Are you kidding me? No, we're not going to do that. So they start throwing stuff, other stuff overboard, and it says they dug in the oars, and they tried as hard as they could to get back to land. They don't want to kill this guy. Begs the question, who's the good guy in the story? You see what I'm saying? Who's, who's the, who are the righteous ones in the story so far? Eventually, they realize this isn't going to work. We got to do, do this. And so then get this. Pay attention. It says they started to pray to Yahweh. They started to pray to Jonah's God. And they said, listen, we don't want to be guilty of killing this innocent man, but it seems like it's what you want. And so we're going to throw him overboard, but don't hold us responsible for this man's life. And as soon as they do, the storm ceases. It goes quiet. It's calm. And then... This part's so interesting. Once they throw them overboard and the storm stops, we're told that they then offered sacrifices and made vows to Yahweh. Jonah has just converted the whole ship, but not on purpose. I mean, it's like Monty Python, or it's like, it's like Pink Panther. How many of y'all grew up watching Pink Panther? You know, who accidentally solves the crime or whatever. Jonah's accidentally converted this entire ship. Now they're making vows. They're committing themselves to Yahweh. It's funny. I think it's funny. It's supposed to be funny. Chapter 2 is what Jonah's most known for. The Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And it says that Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And it's here that Jonah starts to pray. Hmm. He wouldn't pray in the belly of a ship. But he will pray in the belly of a whale or a fish, whatever you want to call it. Isn't this how it usually goes, though, doesn't it? It's really our shark. That'd be even worse. No shark. It's a whale shark. Both. There you go. Megalodon. It's Jason Statham wasn't there. Jeez, it's bad. It's bad. But isn't this how it tends to go, y'all? We don't start getting serious about getting serious till we have to. Am I right? It's the only part of the book that's not funny. It's chapter 2. It's Jonah's prayer. Now, here's what's so interesting. I think this is where the author's brilliant. Jonah's prayer is not original to Jonah. The prayer that the author puts on Jonah's lips are quotes after quote after quote from the book of Psalms. This was Israel's prayer book. They all prayed these prayers, right? These are the prayers that Jonah prays in the fish. I think this is so interesting. I think what, what the author's doing now is pulling the reader or the hearer into the story because they've prayed these prayers too. And they're all particularly prayers of thanksgiving for God's deliverance, for God's rescue. Those times when you blew it and you were in over your head and it should have turned out worse, but it didn't. There was some sort of grace that came your way and it pulled. You ever been there before? And you ever prayed that sort of prayer? So these prayers were all familiar, like Christmas carols. 
I mean, for us, we, we know Christmas carols, right? I can start singing one right now, and you can just take it over. And then all the feelings that come along with Christmas come with those. This is how these prayers would have been. And so they got Jonah praying these prayers of thanksgiving for deliverance, of, of God's undeserved grace that showed up in a time of need and pulled them out of trouble. The, the hearers are going to start thinking about all the times which that happened for them. It's brilliant. It's a brilliant move by the author. But after three days and three nights, Jonah recommits himself to God. And then it says, I love this, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah out onto dry land. So again, you can imagine he's in this dark belly. He's like, I'm sorry, I'm in. It's this like big climactic moment. I'm in, I'm recommitted, right? He just sort of gets spit out onto the beach. And then chapter three, verse one, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Or it could say another time. I like that. Who's grateful for second chances in here? The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. It says, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim the message I gave you. This is my favorite chapter, chapter 3. This is, this is so Monty Python. Jonah goes into the city and he starts to preach. Okay, And this is his message. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's his whole message. right? That's it. 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Jonah delivers the shortest prophecy in the entire Bible. It's eight words in English, five words in Hebrew. Compare that to the book of Nahum, which is just a couple of books to the right. Nahum also delivered a word to the people of Nineveh as well, but his prophecy is three chapters long, and it's full of imagery and metaphor, and it's powerful, and it goes on and on and on. Not Jonah. He rolls up into town, and he's like, 40 more days, and this place is going to be overturned. He reminds me of like when I was a teenager, and my parents would tell me to do something I didn't want to do. I would just do it really bad, and then they would never ask me to do it again, right? I feel like Jonah's kind of doing that. Fine, you want me to preach for 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown, right? That's it. That's all he does. But guess what? It works. It works. We're told that the entire city, the entire city repents in this big, over-the-top sort of way. Like everybody, everybody repents. Like Jonah chapter 3, verse 5. Listen to this. It says, The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. It's like this itchy sort of burlap that they would wear as a sign of repentance, right? Every single person puts on some burlap, so they're all walking around itching, and they're not eating anything. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, Nineveh, he arose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. This is Yahweh. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he threatened. Who preaches a better message? The prophet from God or the pagan king? Again, taking the norms and flipping them upside down. But Jonah preaches the shortest, most half-hearted message to the most violent people in the known world, and they respond with this incredible, over-the-top sort of repentance. Repentance, according to the Scripture, is how we're meant to respond to God's grace. 
It means to turn it around or to return, to come home, to come back to our senses. In this upside-down story, the violent, wretched Ninevites are the most radical example of repentance in the entire Bible. Now, here's what's wild. Since about A.D. 200, Jonah chapter 3 has been read in Jewish synagogues around the world on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It is the biggest Jewish holiday of the year. But they read this chapter of Scripture because they believe that these Ninevites are demonstrating what true repentance looks like. Man, just, just sit there for a second. Think about that. What does that say about the kind of work that God wants to do in here? I mean, think about that. Some of their most hated enemies become their example. Whoa. I mean, what sort of death and resurrection has to happen in somebody's heart for them to be open to that? Open to looking at somebody they hate, their enemy, as an example. Think about that. What's that say about the kind of work that God wants to do in our hearts? That's pretty intense. Wouldn't you agree? But chapter 4 is when the author drops the hammer. This is how it opens. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take take me away. My life is better for me to die than to live. This is why we see why Jonah didn't want to go there in the first place. Not because he was afraid of what the Ninevites would do to him, but because he was afraid that God would forgive them. Whew. That's what he was afraid of. That God would, and just kill me. So mad. Just take me away. This is stupid. I want to die. And then what he does is he goes outside of the city and he parks on this hill. And he builds this little lean-to. And he sits there because in his mind, he's like, you know what? This ain't going to last. These Ninevites, they're going to backslide. They're going to go back to their old ways. And then God's going to destroy them. And I want a front row seat to watch that. And so he's sitting there, his little lean-to. And then God, again, it's like a cartoon. God makes this plant grow up right next to, right next to Jonah. Grows up immediately. It's like, whoop, blip, And it's got leaves, right? And it gives him shade in the sun. And we're told that he's very happy about that plant. He's like, I love, I love this plant. This plant's great. Because it's, it's making his life comfortable. He's sitting there in the shade, waiting for God to destroy the wicked Ninevites. And then the next morning, it says that God sent a worm to eat the, eat the plant up, eats it, and it withers and it dies. And then when the sun comes up, God sends a scorching east wind to make it miserable for Jonah. So he's sitting there baked in the sun. And he does his little thing again. He's like, this is horrible. Just kill me. I just want to die. This is awful. Plant's gone. I love the plant. Plant's dead. They're not dead. I Just kill me. I want to die, right? Then it says this. This is how it all ends. Well, the Lord asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah says this. It is, he said. I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. Verse 10, the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left 
and also many animals. <laughs> I love that. That's how the story ends. With Jonah and God arguing about what should happen to the Ninevites. We're never told what happens next. This is how it ends. It's because the story isn't really about Jonah, is it? It's about us. It's about us and what we're going to do with God's unruly grace. Because that's the, that's the whole point of Jonah. God's grace doesn't play by our rules. That's what this story is about. God's grace doesn't play by our rules. Man, we got all these lines and sides and ideas about who's good, who's bad, who's right, who's wrong, who deserves to be judged and punished, and who doesn't, don't we? The thing about God's grace is it ignores all of that. It just steps over all of that and extends itself to the people that we least expect it to. God's grace isn't played by our rules. I remember when I was in Ohio, I, I served as a pastor for a man on death row. Name was Ray. Some of you have heard me talk about Ray before because in my experience with Ray, such a formative experience. But I just sort of on a whim, they needed a pastor to talk to this guy, to, to communicate with him. And I was like, okay, fine, I'll do it. And our relationship started off as like writing letters, which was fine. But then he asked me to come and start visiting with him in person leading up to his, his execution. And I was like, whew, okay. And so I did it. Drove a couple hours, Chillicothe, Ohio. And I guess people here are familiar with that. There's one of the places they filmed Shawshank Redemption, one of them. So it's creepy. Right? Creepy, creepy prison. Uh, and I was on my way there. Never forget the first day, driving there. A couple hours. And nobody ever told me what he did to get on death row. They only said, don't ask him. I was like, okay. So I waited until the morning of to look it up myself. Big mistake. Super troubling. I mean, it really was. Like, it is brutal. Brutal crime. And so I'm driving the whole way there thinking about, like, what do you say to this? Like, what's it going to be like when you get there? Like, you know, what, what am I going to do? And then I remember getting in the parking lot, and the thing just looks spooky. I mean, there's like an old, like, weathered playground, like, from a zombie movie sitting out front that, like, nobody had used. Just sitting there, swings, that creaky swing going back and forth. And I'm like, I'm like walking into this place, you know? And so getting in was just so disturbing. The whole thing was disturbing. I got in at a shift change. So you got all these guards coming out, couldn't wait to go home. You got all these guards coming in. I'm like right in the middle of it. I'm like, where do I go? What do I do? Where do I go? What do I do? Somebody helps me out. And it was like layer after layer after layer going through the prison to get to where I was going to meet with Ray. And like every layer I went in, I felt like I was leaving God further and further behind. I mean, it was just a heavy, heavy place, right? And then I get to the final, you know, part and it's like a spaceship or something because they bring you into one room and lock this really big door and you're like in the middle it's like an elevator and you can look into the next window into a big like mess hall and there's this single solitary guy sitting in the middle of it chained to a table and the guy's like okay I'm gonna let you in and I'm like well, where are you going <laughs> he's like I'll be sitting here watching on camera okay and if something happens I'll get in there I'm like that's gonna take a while you know and so he's like, you're off. And so I go, and the door opens, and I go, and I sit down with Ray. And like I said, the whole time, I felt like I was leaving God further and further behind, but that really wasn't the case. Because God actually met me in the belly of that prison, in the face of a man who had been radically transformed by God's grace. I mean, I sat and talked with Ray for hours, for hours. I've never met anybody like him. I mean, he, he didn't expect anybody to feel sorry for him. You know, he, he owned what he did. He owned it. 
He didn't ever think that he should get out or, or he didn't think he should get off of death row. I mean, he's like, I, I'm, I'm, where, I'm where I am because of what I did. But man, it was so obvious this guy had encountered the grace of God. And he had peace, like real peace. It was unreal. And he started telling me about his story and about who, who impacted his life. And it was a guy, it was a friend uh, named Mitz. And Mitz had just been executed a few months before when I got there. And Mitz had been radically changed by the grace of God because he had ended, the people he had, ended, he had killed, the family of those people met him while he was still in jail. So I hadn't even been sentenced yet. They met him while he was in jail. And they said, listen, we're definitely not okay with what happened. We're mad, we're angry, we're hurt, but we're going to work on forgiving you. And we actually want more than anything for you to know the grace of God. And they prayed with him there, and they gave him his first Bible. Like, this radically changed Mitt's life, who then radically changed Ray's life. And then Ray had such a profound impact on the prison system, like where, where he was at, the people he would mentor and he would talk to. Truth is, he actually ended up getting off death row. He's going to spend the rest of his life in, in prison, but he's making a difference. Y'all, God's grace doesn't play by our rules. God's grace doesn't play by our rules. I don't know about you, but I'm grateful for that. Are you grateful for that? Who are your Ninevites? Who are your Assyrians? Who have you written off? This also tells me in God's economy there's no such thing as a lost cause. Am I right? Maybe it's you. Maybe you're the lost cause in your mind. What I love in the beginning of this book, the irony, Jonah's trying to run away from the God of everything. He's trying to run away from the God you can't get away from. This tells me, man, you might be a million miles away from God in your heart and your mind, but the truth is God is never far from you. This is where I'm going to leave it this morning, just to let this story work on you. And now that you are familiar with it, here's what I want you to do. It's four chapters long this week. I want you to read it for yourself. Knowing what you know now, read it for yourself. And let it do its work on you. And see how it needs to challenge you with the truth that God's grace doesn't play by our rules. Amen? Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your Bible, for your scriptures, and the ways in which it challenges us. It confronts us. And so, Lord, speak something into our hearts and our minds. I pray, Lord, that all of us will find some time to get away and to read this story for ourselves and to find ourselves in it, to see all the ways in which we are Jonah. And we really struggle with your grace, whether it's the grace for us that we so desperately need or whether it's the grace that we have such a hard time extending to other people. Confront us with this story. Confront us with your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, before you go, don't forget about the podcast we do every week as a follow-up to the sermon, right? It's called Let's Keep It Going. I got a bunch of stuff on this that we're going to dive into some more, but we also would love to hear from you. If you got some questions about what you heard or things that you want to hear more about, be sure to let us know uh, before we record that on Wednesday so that we can get to the questions on the podcast. You dig? Dig. Thanks for coming, y'all. See you next week.